This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come in, come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Happy Father's Day uh, to all the dads. I had a I had a great Father's Day, I have to tell you. My boys uh, baked me this enormous chocolate chip cookie. Uh, with, uh, you know, We Love You, Dad, on it. And um, they bought me uh, soap on a rope in the shape of a microphone. <laughs> uh, very appropriate. Uh, so maybe I'll do the next uh, program from the shower. Uh, I also got a set of headsets, uh, headphones uh, for my iPhone. So when I go running, I can listen to my music and uh, some specialty coffees. And we had a barbecue. We played Balderdash, uh, threw the baseball around in the backyard. So a very, very memorable a Father's Day for this dad, and I hope yours was equally uh, memorable. Former FBI agent John Guandalo, a, a counterterrorism expert, is standing by to discuss the threat of a radical uh, jihadi terror, uh, the recent massacre inside the, uh, the nightclub in Orlando, of course, and also we'll touch upon the missing 28 pages from the 9-11 report and uh, whether or not uh, the U.S. government has been covering up the uh, the Saudi role in 9/11 these these last uh, 15 years. Uh, let me just remind you that uh, season four of the Conspiracy Show, the television program, season four, uh, debuts very soon, Monday, June the 27th. Monday, June the 27th. At 9 p.m. Eastern, across Canada, Season 4, brand new episodes coming your way. And um, again, that is Monday, June the 27th at 9 p.m. Eastern, across Canada. So be on the lookout for that. Write that down. Uh, Albert Vinzel, my intrepid story producer, is here. He's running our HOA tonight, Hangout On Air. And if you want to stream this radio program live on YouTube, it's really simple. Just go to my uh, Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, 
at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, and go to the top of the feed and look for that tweet containing the HOA link and just click on it. You're in. And you can watch the radio on YouTube. How cool is that? Uh, Ian Robertson, my uh, rockabilly friend and technical producer, is off the next couple of weeks. Uh, so we have the very capable and talented Jamie on the, uh, the board tonight. Uh, please get on up to the website, strangeplanet.ca. That's your landing page, and from there you can check out the radio page for this program. Uh, the radio page has all sorts of uh, great information about the show, including this week's show info, links to guests' website, uh, their websites. Uh, you can become a member of uh, uh, the book club and so forth, and you can do that by clicking the blue member button at the left-hand side. So click on the blue member button on the left-hand side, and that's uh, how you register. It's fast, it's free, and again, it gains you access to uh, member-only areas of the website, uh, like the book club that I mentioned, the audio archives, and et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, there's the TV page, of course. I just mentioned season four. All right. Uh, the recent horrific massacre at a nightclub in Orlando in which uh, a gunman killed 49 club patrons, many of uh, members of the... Uh, the gay and lesbian community in Orlando. The gunman, Omar Mateen, pledged his allegiance to ISIS during a 9-11 call while he was on his bloody rampage. Now, Mateen was born in New York. His parents had emigrated uh, from Afghanistan. His father is reported to be a a supporter of the Taliban in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, Now, there are reports that Mateen himself may have been a gay. According to a number of witnesses, he was a frequent patron at Pulse. He had posted his profile on a gay date, a dating site. So uh, a lot of speculation going around, but it's, it's interesting to note that back in April, a visiting imam at a mosque in Orlando, a guest speaker, stated uh, that the penalty for homosexuality, according to Sharia law, must be death. This imam actually uh, made the statement that it is the compassionate thing to do, if you can believe that, uh, that the, uh, again, that according to Sharia law, the, the, the penalty for homosexuality must be death. This was spoken at a mosque in Orlando. And, uh, of course, we had the, the terrorist massacre uh, in San Bernardino back in December 2015, 14 people shot by a county health Inspector Syed Rizwan Farooq and his uh, wife, Tashfeen Malik, they were uh, both of Pakistani descent. So we are going to discuss a radical jihadi terrorism for the next 40 minutes. What is it? Where does it come from? What is being to, done to defend against? John Guandalo is the founder of an organization dedicated to providing strategic and operational threat-focused consultation, education, training for federal, state, and local leadership uh, and, and agencies. In 1989, he graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy. He took a commission as an officer in the U.S. Marine Corps, where he served with the 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines as an infantry platoon commander in combat operations during Desert Shield and Desert Storm. From 91 to 96, he served in the 2nd Force Reconnaissance Company as a platoon commander, assistant uh, operations officer, and the unit's airborne and uh, diving officer deploying to the Adriatic and Bosnia. He served for one year as the unit leader for the CINC's uh, extremist force, directing reporting to a combatant commander in a classified mission profile. Uh, John was a combat diver, a military freefall parachutist, and is a graduate of the U.S. Army Ranger School. In 1996, John Guandalo joined the Federal Bureau of Investigation, serving at the Washington Field Office. And from 96 to 2000, 
He primarily conducted narcotics investigations domestically and overseas. In 2001, he served as the FBI liaison to the U.S. Capitol Police investigating threats on the president, vice president, members of Congress, and other high-level government officials. Shortly after 9-11, John Guandalo began an assignment to the Counterterrorism Division of the FBI's Washington Field Office, developing an expertise in the Muslim Brotherhood, Islamic Doctrine, the Global Islamic Movement, and a myriad of terrorist organizations uh, to include al-Qaeda, uh, and others. In 2006, Mr. Guandalo created and implemented the first, uh, the FBI's first counterterrorism training education program focusing on the Muslim Brotherhood and their subversive movement in the United States, uh, Islamic doctrine, and the global Islamic movement. He was uh, designed a subject matter expert by FBI headquarters. Uh, this course was hailed as groundbreaking by the FBI's executive assistant director in a brief to the vice president's national security staff. For his efforts in 2007, John Guandalo was presented the Defender of the Homeland Award by U.S. Senators John Kyle and Joseph Lieberman on behalf of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C. While in the FBI, John Guandalo received two United States Attorneys Awards for Investigative Excellence. He's also the author of Raising a Jihadi Generation. John Guandalo, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. That's a quite a resume. Um, listen, I, I, I want to give you a moment first because, to, to clarify something, because when, if someone were to, to Google John Guandalo uh, right now, they're going to come up with uh, a, a lot of these websites, and uh, you're being described, and you know what I'm about to say. You're described as you know, a discredited or, um, uh, you know, they talk about uh, disgraced, disgraced former FBI agent John Guandalo. Could you... Just take a moment and and set the record straight and from your perspective on uh, your tenure at the FBI and what led to your resignation and so forth. Sure. I actually appreciate you giving me that opportunity. Um, well, first of all, I would say um, the attacks that are personal attacks are always the ones that come uh, because our enemies can't, can't win an argument when it comes to the facts on the table and when it comes to what they're doing. Uh, when I present the information that I present to law enforcement or governors or members of Congress or, you know, attorney generals, uh, state legislators, uh, and I have briefed a number of former senior government officials, national security advisors to the president, FBI, CIA, DIA directors, um, there's no um, issue with the information and its validity and the realization that the threat here in the United States is devastatingly grave and that um, those are the facts on the table uh, and that the groups that are prime, that are coming after me, both the left-wing Marxist groups and the uh, jihadi groups, uh, are clearly who the evidence says they are. So I, I'd like to just put that on the table. Um, but... I, I left the FBI in December of 2008 because I was recruited by the Department of Defense uh, for more money and a lot more freedom to operate, uh, to do strategic analysis of the Islamic threat, which is why I left in 2008. Uh, in 2000 and, mm, 
by the time 2004 came along, I had moved over uh, in, in early 2002 to the counterterrorism division after 9-11. And uh, by 2004, I was really struggling with uh, or frustrated by the fact that because of some of the cases we were working, two major cases to be specific, um, and I was the case agent on these two cases I'm talking about, uh, the evidence of the Muslim Brotherhood's jihadi network in the United States and that, uh, frankly, all of the major Islamic organizations are a part of the jihadi network working with Hamas, Al-Qaeda, and in some cases Hezbollah and the Iranians. Um, the evidence of that was very clear, and we had FBI cases all over the country that were linking together. And it was hard for me to swallow when I first came across it, but when I started calling other offices, what I found was that the leaders of these organizations uh, were having lunch with the leaders of the FBI offices, and that's why some of these cases were getting shut down because the bosses were saying these guys aren't a problem because I, you know, I know them well. And, um, and then in 2006, when I put together the first training, um, it was very well received by the people who attended it. It was a two week training. The only one that's ever been done like that in the entire government in 2006, we did it. And I put that together and facilitated the whole training. And we had everybody from, senior DOJ people, Department of Justice, U.S. Attorney's Office people, uh, and people from all the major federal agencies, state and local law enforcement from 11 different states. And uh, they spent two weeks at this course, and uh, they realized the threat was significant. And it was after that course that I started getting hammered inside the Bureau because it, by doing the course, it embarrassed a lot of the leadership. Uh, and at the same time, yeah, I did have my own personal struggles in 2004 and 2005. Um, but those were not known inside the Bureau until, you know, seven or eight months after I left. All right, John, we're going to take a time out here. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion. A former FBI agent, counterterrorism expert, John Guandalo, the author of Raising a Jihadi a Generation, uh, will speak about... Not only Orlando, uh, any possible connections to the San Bernardino shooting in December 2015, and also we'll touch upon the missing 28 pages, which is a topic very near and dear uh, to this host uh, because of uh, my relationship, a professional relationship with the late Phil Marshall, who wrote a book called The Big Bamboozle, which focused on those missing 28 pages and, of course, the 9-11 report uh, that was chaired by... Republican Florida Senator Bob Graham, the 9-11 report that nobody knows about, but perhaps uh, far more important and telling than uh, the one that came after. Uh, back with more of our conversa conversation, stay with us right here. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zuma Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, welcome back. Former FBI agent, counterterrorism expert, and the author of Raising a Jihadi Generation, John Guandalo was here. Let me uh, issue a, a disclaimer uh, that, that what we are talking about here is 
uh, radical jihadi terrorism, radical Islamic terrorism. And I have no doubt uh, that the majority of, uh, listen, uh, adherence to, to uh, Islam, n- no different in this, uh, than, than many uh, Christians or Jews, and let's face it, most are sort of nominal, right? We are Christians or, or Jews or Muslims in name only. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we uh, observe the, the, the rituals and so forth on the, on the important uh, high holidays, and other than that, many don't give a second thought to it. But what we're talking about here is radical jihadis or radical Islam. Uh, And when we're talking, however, about a a religion of 1.6 billion people, even a tiny minority obviously can be problematic uh, when they decide to to wage war on what they call the infidels. Uh, And the infidels would include moderate Muslims. Uh, So they are being targeted, Um, not just Christians and and Jews and and Kurds and, and, uh, you know, gay, straight, you name it. So, that being said, uh, John Guandalo, I want to get to, to the Orlando shooting, and it has been obviously politicized uh, on both sides. The New York Times had this, probably the worst editorial written in, uh, in history, I think, when they tried to blame the Orlando shooting on Christians, the NRA, and Republicans. Um, is there any mind, in, in, any question, rather, in your mind that Omar Mateen was a radicalized jihadi terrorist? Well, I'd have to ask you to clarify. I don't know what those terms mean. I, I certainly know what a jihadi is. Uh, I don't know what a radicalized jihadi terrorist is. And why I ask the question this way is, um, since 9-11, we have not accurately identified the threat. And maybe in an answer, a brief answer to the question, if I could summarize the, the great issue and quite frankly, the guy who used to run uh, the irregular warfare section at the Department of Defense was on the radio on Friday uh, on a national radio program and made it very clear, uh, certainly articulated what I'm about to say, which is what I've been saying for a long time, is that the problem is we have yet to identify the threat. American warfighting doctrine has always said that when you have an enemy, you identify the threat. In order to do real analysis of the enemy, you identify the enemy because you can't destroy an enemy or defeat an enemy you don't identify. It's not possible. And since 9-11, we haven't defined the enemy. None of our national security doctrines, none of the national security uh, releases, nothing has defined the enemy. And that's the problem because we're afraid to identify it as what it is. So when we use the terms, we have to use the terms understanding that, how the enemy understands them. They're jihadis. You know, we call them terrorists, and that's okay, but they're not terrorists. They're jihadis. Uh, in, In Islam, a terrorist is someone who kills a Muslim without right. So that would be us. That would be our allies. That would be somebody who kills a Muslim without right under Sharia. That's what a terrorist is. And the term radicalized, I don't know what that means either. I know what people think it means. 
Um, in the sense that he was, I mean, at, at least at this point, uh, yes, he did make a nine one one call and and you know pledged his allegiance to ISIS, and they took credit. But he, uh, I don't know that we've determined that he was necessarily part of a, a a cell or a network. So I guess what I mean was, he he took it upon himself to pledge this allegiance to ISIS and then act out accordingly. So I what I I, I guess what I mean is self radicalized rather than part of a, a known network. Okay, and so that is a great question, and, and let me unpack that, because what you've just gotten to is the root of why our national security leadership and organizations 15 years after 9-11 have had little success. We lost two wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Our domestic counterterrorism strategy is imploding, and our foreign policy is a complete catastrophic failure. Now, if I, I wouldn't mind debating that. I am assuming we can look with common sense eyes at what's actually happened in the, this administration and the previous administration, and we can see that the, the results of the policies is complete failure, literally. And um, so what we have is the failure to understand what's actually going on. So what holds all of these things together, 9-11, the Fort Hood shooting, the Boston bombers, the San Bernardino shooters, Paris and Brussels attack, the 7-7 bombings in the U.K., the attacks in Spain, the attacks in, uh, you know, in, in Africa, the attacks, and all of these attacks we're seeing are all tied together by one thing, and they all say it. Al-Qaeda says it. The Muslim Brotherhood and their groups say it. Hamas, Hezbollah say it. ISIS says it. Abu Sayyaf says it. Tabliki Jamaat and all the guys that we that we grab on the battlefield, or that we that fight on the battlefield, and the jihadis we meet in Europe and Africa in the UK here in North America that that we arrest before or after, like the, one of the Tsarnaevs that survived after the event all say the same thing. They're Muslims waging jihad in the cause of Allah to establish a global Islamic state, a caliphate, under Sharia, Islamic law. 100% of them say that. And if we actually, which is, this is what understanding the threat does, when we train law enforcement, we actually show them what Sharia is and what it actually says. And when we teach it, we teach the police and the military and the intelligence professionals what the Muslims teach other Muslims in Islamic schools and mosques. So we use those books and we show them. Here's a website of the mosque that's 10 miles from here, wherever we are. And here's their website, and there's a picture of the book they use, and here's the book right here. Let's break it open, and what's it say? And the reason this is so critical is what Omar Mateen did in Orlando was lawful under Islamic law. And he does not need to be part, according to that doctrine, which they say is the doctrine they're following, Sharia. Under that doctrine, he doesn't need to be part of a group. Sharia obliges in some places and allows for what's called individual jihad. There's no such thing in Sharia as a lone wolf. I don't even know what that means. I know what people think it means. 
but individual jihad is allowed, and that's what he did. That's what the Boston bombers did. Now, you can do that with support from outside people, like the Times Square bomber. Then that's more like an operation, but it's still an individual act of jihad. It's an operation. But when you, you know, the guy who takes an axe and hits a New York PD officer in the head, screaming Allahu Akbar, or the Muslim that goes into the restaurant in Ohio with a machete and starts hacking people, screaming Allahu Akbar, or the woman in Vegas, or the guy in Fremont, California, or the guy at the University of North Carolina, all Muslims screaming Allahu Akbar, who plow their cars into people. Vehicular jihad, that's all jihad, and it's all lawful under Sharia. So the, the reason this is key, and why I think your question was, was really good, is it unpacks, your question unpacks the real problem, is that we're not addressing that. This isn't about uh, it, anything else. I mean, I've seen guns blamed, I've seen Christians blamed for the attack in Orlando, but it was a Muslim waging jihad. That's what he did. And it's lawful under Islamic law. And what he did is taught in all Islamic schools because it comes out of the Quran and it comes out of the example of the Prophet Muhammad, who himself said, kill the sodomizers and those who let it be done to them. And he's the perfect example. So everything he does, and we can break that down the more you want, but the reality is this doctrine of Sharia is everything. It's the whole game, and it is not being taught anywhere in the Pentagon, anywhere in the FBI, CIA, or DHS, because it's not allowed to be, because the Muslim advisors, who all just happen to be Muslim Brotherhood, say that it offends them, and so we don't do it. That is, if your listeners get nothing else out of tonight's talk, that is the key, because that's why we're losing the war. And I'll just quote the, uh, the gentleman, Mr. Higgins, who uh, spoke on that national radio broadcast on Friday, who ran the irregular warfare program inside the Department of the Defense. These are guys doing really amazing work for a period of years during these wars. And he said that these guys, these jihadis, these Muslim Brotherhood guys in suits, have completely penetrated the national security decision-making process to the point that the U.S. government are tools for the jihad. You know, who did, what happened? Uh, Saddam Hussein was going after and killing Muslim Brotherhood leaders. We killed him. Hosni Mubarak, the leader of Egypt, was going after the Muslim Brotherhood. We pulled him out of power. The leader in, in Libya, Muammar Gaddafi, what was he doing? Keeping it, keeping the, uh, you know, the boot on the neck of the Muslim Brotherhood. We we killed him, and we're doing that. We we are the tool that they're using for their global movement. It is unreal. We, the U.S. government, funded and provided arms to Al Qaeda in Syria and Libya. That's 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 a fact. That's been you know questioned about and talked about on in open testimony in Congress. Is the word sedition too strong a word here, John Guandalo? Sedition. I don't think so. No, I do not. As a matter of fact, let me put it this way. If you're, you know, if it's you, for instance, or it's, you know, my dad who's retired, or it's your neighbor, and they say 
let's let's just take a, a third party and they say, well, I, I don't really understand all this. Well, that's okay. But if you're a secretary of defense or a secretary of state or the secretary of Homeland Security or the director of central intelligence or the FBI, and you make public con, con, uh, comments that make it clear you don't understand what I just said, and yet it's factually, you can't, it's irrefutable because we can go, because we do, and show what Islamic doctrine says, and it all says it. There aren't thousands of interpretations. It all says it, and then we show that al-Qaeda, ISIS, and all these others, and all these individual jihadis who are being taught it in Islamic schools rely on it to do what they're doing, and you, in that official capacity for the U.S. government, say you don't know it, or you make it clear like they are making it clear after this Orlando thing and have for the last, quite frankly, 10 years, that they don't have a clue. Well, in other professions, we would call that professional negligence or unprofessional conduct. However, when people are dead because of your unprofessional conduct, our law in America calls that criminal negligence, and we put doctors and lawyers in jail for that conduct. And I would put forth the argument that national security leadership and people with national security responsibilities should be held to the same standard. So, no, I do not believe sedition or treason or these other words are too strong because we are losing the war. Most Americans don't have a clue because nobody at that level, none of the presidential candidates have actually articulated the threat and said, look, this is what we're up against. I believe if you did that, I believe the American people are smart enough to say, well, that sounds like a bunch of hooey or, or to actually go, wait a minute, what he's saying actually explains everything we've witnessed for the last 15 years. It's the only thing that actually makes it make sense. All right, so John, let me, let, me, uh, let me step in here. We'll take another time out. John Guandalo, former FBI agent, counterterrorism expert, the author of Raising a Jihadi Generation, uh, back with more of our conversation right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Please stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740. Or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. John Guandolo is uh, with us. F the FBI's, uh, or implemented the FBI's first counterterrorism training education program. And uh, he is a counterterrorism expert, the author of Raising a Jihadi Generation. What you're saying, uh, uh, John, also being echoed by a, uh, a lifelong officer in the Department of Homeland Security, Phil Haney, who wrote uh, a book that's causing quite a stir as well, uh, See Something, Say Nothing. He's saying that the that law enforcement in the United States uh, being handcuffed in certain circumstances and in other circumstances absolutely just refusing to do basic level investigation, to employ basic level investigative procedures when it comes to uh, these uh, these terrorist acts, and uh, to it he says that he was able to draw connections between uh, Omar Mateen and and the San Bernardino uh, shooters based on the organizations. 
Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Is there a connection between Orlando and San Bernardino? Right, and the work that Mr. Haney did in the DHS paralleled the work I was doing in the FBI. My focus was looking at, uh, so let me tie this together. The the answer to your question is yes, um, because, but it's a different network. So it's interesting. It's the same network, but it's a little, so it's the same jihadi network. It's just my focus was the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, His focus was Tabliki Jamaat, which is simply for your listeners, uh, without getting too complicated, it's just simply another Islamic movement. And it just comes out of a different part of the world. The Muslim Brotherhood uh, is a Sunni organization, as is Tabliki Jamaat, Sunni being one part and the majority of Islam, 90% of Islam, Shia being primarily Iran. Uh, but Tabliki Jamaat is an area, uh, came out of an area of the world, uh, um, and what their movement is is very similar to the Brotherhood, and they work together. What he noticed is these guys were coming into the country, hardcore jihadis, major leaders in other parts of the world, meeting with the senior leaders of the biggest Islamic organizations in America, which are also Muslim Brotherhood. So he started putting cases together. And what he realized was as he started looking at the networks, he was just coming at them from that angle. And so when I uh, became aware of his work, which it took probably seven years ago now, um, he he and I saw eye to eye. But he was focused on coming from the other angle. I was looking at it from here in the U.S., the Muslim Brotherhood Network, and that's what we were uh, trying to, to investigate. Because through several investigations inside the FBI, it was very clear that the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood Network, uh, what they were up to. And so, yes, number one, what he's putting out is, I mean, he's, he's an incredibly honorable uh, man, and he did in the U.S. government when he just retired recently. Uh, I would say he was the most effective guy in the entire U.S. government of all the agencies in understanding this threat. And he has now written a book, as you said. He's out on radio and TV speaking very plainly about this. Um, as a matter of fact, he was on the same radio station with Mr. Higgins from uh, the Department of Defense just on Friday. And so, yes, number one, there is a tie there through that Tabliki system, which was these mosques in the area. But this jihadi network uh encompasses nearly all the Islamic centers in the United States, which that's a mosque. Islamic center, mosque, masjid are all the same. So that's a little bit of a long-winded answer to your question. Well, the the other issue, of course, is it's a broken record. Uh, again, in the Omar Mateen case, we, we understand that he was on the so-called radar, quote-unquote, of the FBI and other groups since 2013, 2014. Uh, I mean, why do we keep hearing about these individuals being on or under observation, uh, and yet they keep seeming to uh, to slip through the cracks? Well, I would go back to what I said earlier. Um, Your average FBI counterterrorism agent, and certainly the leadership of the FBI, um, 
just based on the FBI director's comments last Monday uh, after the shooting, uh, where he still said, we're still looking for a motive. He made it clear in some of his comments he didn't understand the working relationship between the Sunnis and the Shia, ISIS and Iran, um, and that somehow Omar Mateen's ability to say he, he was loyal to the idea deals of Hezbollah and ISIS, uh, the director said, you know, they're, they're arch enemies, so obviously he's just all mixed up. Now, the only one mixed up is the FBI director. Uh, you can be a jihadi and say what Hamas is doing is good, what Hezbollah is doing is good, and I think they're both awesome and have no conflict of interest because Hamas and Hezbollah work together. Al-Qaeda and ISIS work together, two Sunni organizations, just like Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah, which is an arm of the Iranian government, which is Shia. They work together. Iran supported the 9-11 attacks by providing Al-Qaeda with explosive expertise and training uh, in Iran, and the hijackers went to Iran. So, uh, And, of course, we haven't touched them. All this to say, the reason that we make such ridiculous comments about these shootings is because we don't have a clue. They're great. And let me be clear. The FBI is busting their butt. They are working very hard, long hours. If you go to FBI headquarters just to give people an insight, it is from 7 in the morning, you know, to, to 7 at night. I mean, it is so much going on. And then you have an entire crew of people that follow every threat coming in. And it, they're, as the FBI director said, they're overwhelmed. But you can't look, you have to look at this as being one incident in a much larger war. But you can't understand that if you don't understand Sharia. And this is a global effort, uh, which is why we just, we, it appears totally clueless. So when an FBI agent who's never been trained in Sharia were to understand this, this jihadi network here in the Muslim Brotherhood, because the last time there was any training in the FBI was when I did it. That was uh, 10 years ago. Okay, John, i got to jump in here. Apologies. We're going to take a time out. We'll come back. We'll finish up on that okay. point. And then I want to move on to the missing 28 pages. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. How many Highland flings can one man have? This is the story of the biggest flirt in Scotland. He's engaged to one woman, betrothed to a second, and possibly even wed to a third. The Shaw Festival presents Engaged, a hilarious must-see comedy by W.S. Gilbert of Gilbert & Sullivan fame. To receive free wine-tasting vouchers from Peller Estates and Trias Winery, go to shawfest.com. We may want different things, but we can agree on the beach. Palladium Hotels and Resorts, all-inclusive beachside properties in the Caribbean and Mexico, tailor their services and accommodations for families, couples, weddings, and business meetings. Meaning, no matter how we dream it, we can live it. Visit palladiumhotelgroup.com and see your travel agent or transathholidays.com by June 30th for super early winter bookings. Palladium Hotels and Resorts. Feel free to live your dreams. Nice business card. I wish my company had its own design department. <laughs> it's not that. Of course, the work of a graphic designer, a real pro. 
I should have guessed. It's got that sleek professional look. So who did you use? Vistaprint, actually, and I did them myself. 500 cards for just $9.99. You did these online for less than 10 bucks. That's right. I just selected them from their templates, customized the look I want with their easy-to-use design tools, uploaded my logo, and presto. So you're not a big company? Shh, don't tell. Are you ready to give your business a professional, high-quality look for just $9.99? Then go now to vistaprint.ca and explore our range of professional templates, each customizable to fit your unique style. Satisfaction guaranteed, because what you hand out should make you stand out. But hurry, this offer won't last long. To get 500 professional business cards for just $9.99, go to vistaprint.ca today and enter promo code 2211 at checkout. That's vistaprint.ca, promo code 2211. Fight back with Libby's Nimer. Every time you hire an untrained and uncertified worker to fix your brakes or let them into your home or condo, you put yourself at risk. Electricians, plumbers, refrigeration and air conditioning systems mechanics all require certification to legally practice in Ontario. Let the Ontario College of Trades help keep you safe. This Monday at 1230, get ready for a real education from the Ontario College of Trades. Fight back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Where there's smoke... There's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra from Zoomer Radio. Uh, welcome back. John Guandalo, former FBI agent, counterterrorism expert, is uh, with us. Uh, families of the, uh, the survivors and families from the uh, 9-11 attacks pressing the uh, White House to release those missing 28 pages, heavily redacted uh, pages that were omitted or deleted from the 9-11 report, not the 9-11 commission that everyone um, heard about, uh, the one that President Bush, has, um, I think he spent more on his re-election barbecue uh, than he did in terms of funding that second uh, c- commission, but the first report that was co-chaired uh, by Senator Bob Graham of Florida. Uh, those 28 pages, uh, the families of uh, the victims of 9-11 are really pressing the White House to release them. And whether they do or not, well, we will we'll find out. But I'd like to find out from uh, John Guandalo what uh, might be in those missing 28 pages uh, and how they may be able to prevent another uh, another terrorist attack uh, on on our shores here in North America. John, the missing 20, you may, you worked at 9-11. You were with the FBI during that period, correct? Yes. And um, now this, why, is it, why did we not hear about this? Most of us are not aware of that original 9-11, 9/11 report. We all, we all know about the commission that came after, but not the one chaired by Bob Graham. Well, a couple things with, with regards to the Saudis, and I'll try to get, get to these points quickly. I know you've got a lot to ask about this. Um, number one is there's no doubt uh, of the Saudi involvement in, in 9-11, uh, the investigations we did, and I'm, this is not just coming from me, publicly, other FBI agents who are now retired have spoken out. Uh, the gentleman who headed the Fairfax County Police um, unit within Fairfax County Police, which is the only unit uh, within the D.C. area that was specifically doing very aggressive counterterrorism work, all of their leads... Um, we're pointing back to the Saudi, to the Saudi embassy. And every time we, and we were working with these guys, uh, every time we would try to pursue some of these leads, a lot of them were getting, we're getting, we were getting a big stiff hand. You can't go 
track that one down. You can't talk to that guy. You can't do this. And this led right back to Prince Bandar, who is the Saudi ambassador. There's evidence that, that monies from his wife's account supported 9-11 hijackers. So what do those missing 28 pages say? Well, some people have read them. They're still classified, uh, so we can't be sure all the details. But it's pretty clear that it's um, probably not helpful for the Saudis. And uh, I would think it needs to be declassified. I think the fact that after 9-11, we didn't pound Saudi Arabia one way or the other, uh, either by seizing their oil wells and saying, well, as long as you're funding the jihad, we're going to go ahead and pay for our war out of your war chest since you're, the, you're one of the main causes. And since Iran has been implicated both in the 9-11 commission report and in the, in the lawsuit, from the families of 9-11, that the evidence is clear that Iran directly supported the hijackers in the 9-11 attack. And, you know, we're now giving them hundreds of billions of dollars back uh, and treating them like an ally. So I think with regards to this question, it opens up a Pandora's box of, of issues. Uh, have you, were you, ever subpoenaed by the, the 9-11 report. I know that, that Graham bemoans the fact that that uh, he and his team of investigators, these were crack investigators, they tried to subpoena uh, field agents, uh, and they were uh, routinely shut down uh, by the Bush administration and told, you cannot speak to these people. These were people in the field that were that were following the hijackers, uh, that, that knew about uh, you know their whereabouts and, and tracked their movements and, and so forth. Were you ever subpoenaed, or did you know anyone that was subpoenaed? <laughs> Excuse me. Well, I was certainly interviewed by the uh, the nine eleven commission, uh, and those inter- interviews were done by uh, investigators outside of the FBI uh, doing that investigation, as were several of my colleagues. So yes, I was. Uh, Prince Bandar uh, was his nickname is Bandy Bush uh, because of uh, he was as you say the Saudi ambassador to uh, Washington, and uh, he was a, a close family friend of the of the Bush family. What are we to make of that connection? Well, I don't know what we're we're to make of it. I, I again, you know, the work I do, Richard. I just uh, I focus on the facts. Uh, I focus on the facts. I focus on, you know, no matter what the topic, that that's what you look at and you look at objectively what's the outcome here. And the outcome is there is uh, clearly uh, the Saudis were complicit in 9-11. We had, you know, the vast majority of the hijackers were Saudis themselves. There's evidence that there was direct Saudi funding. There is testimony and Capitol Hill, uh, from members of several governmental agencies, including uh, the DEA leadership and others. So it's not just like CIA or DO Department of Defense, like DEA and others, that, that millions, tens of millions of dollars from Saudi Arabia go to fund the global jihad, the, 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 what, what in testimony is terrorism, global terrorism. So there's nothing new, and yet our public policy and our political stance towards Saudi Arabia, even after 9-11, has, has never changed. And it, it's not, for, for somebody who just looks at it from a um, 
perspective, an investigative perspective, it makes no sense. Uh, how, you would, how you would consider Saudi Arabia an ally in a war that they're primarily funding. They and Iran are the two largest state sponsors of terrorism on the planet. Uh, Julian Assange uh, for, of WikiLeaks of fame is uh, claiming that he is about to dump uh, some documents that will be very damning uh, to Hillary Clinton, Democratic nominee for president. The Clinton Foundation supposedly uh, will be it will be revealed in that document, and this has been uh, hearsay for for many years that the Clinton Foundation received. A hundred million dollars from various uh, sheiks in the Gulf, and specifically m- many millions of dollars from from the Saudi government. Uh, if that comes to light, I mean, how damning is that going to be uh, for her for her candidacy? Well, that, that's a good question, Richard. And I I got to say, uh, as a guy with you know, as a combat veteran, Marine officer an FBI agent and a guy that worked for DOD doing this kind of work on the, the global jihad. I, I am shocked at kind of everything going on right now in some ways. Um, what she did with regard to the classified information that was on her own server, that there are several emails that contain top, top secret SCI, which is car, uh, compartmented information that if you or I, and really, if I were to have had one transmission, I would have gone to jail for that. But that, that is, an, I mean, everybody who has a clearance, especially guys that have operated in real operational units or analysts, people that understand the sensitivity of this, and she had a number of them, and then she had lesser top-secret uh, information on that server, which we now know has been hacked by foreign nationals. So that information is out there now. That's a fact. That's a violation of law. So, and she's still not in jail. And now, so are we going to act on the fact that she was funded by Saudi Arabia, who America considers an ally, even though it's against the law? Uh, who knows? I doubt it. The, the current uh, attorney general and administration doesn't seem real concerned with the rule of law right now. So I can't imagine that she'd get. Uh, indicted or convicted for that, but of course she should. Anybody should that does this. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, a gentleman, the late Phil Marshall. He was a United Airlines uh, pilot. He wrote a book called, he wrote a couple of books, but the first was called The Big Bamboozle. He relied heavily on uh, information in the 9-11 report from, from Bob Graham. That was the gist of The Big Bamboozle, again, uh, drawing attention to the Saudis and their connection. Uh, uh, Phil um, ended up, well, he was, it was a murder-suicide. He um, allegedly shot his, his children and then turned the gun on himself, although there are several researchers out there who, who find the circumstances surrounding that very unusual after that book came out. Are you familiar with uh, Phil Marshall and the Big Bamboozle? I'm familiar with the book. I've not read the book, so I can't comment on it. Yeah, my But be- I obviously am familiar with it situation with who he was and, and that, yeah, that the book was written. Yeah, I, I, I met Phil in um, Santa Monica, spoke with him several times, uh, we had uh, email correspondence. The day I found out that uh, what happened to Phil and his family, horrible, horrible story, uh, my email thread disappeared, which never happens. I don't delete anything. Anyway, I just, I'll throw that out there. But, um, okay, so... 
Um, if Hillary Clinton wins the White House, assuming she's not indicted, and, and I don't know if you have any uh, FBI colleagues among the 147 that are supposedly investigating her and pushing for an indictment, uh, let's assume that doesn't happen and she wins the White House. Uh, what are your, 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 what's your worst-case scenario in terms of national security? Um, well, honestly, this is professionally what I have been saying uh, to fairly small groups, but just in the last week to broader groups, is I think if she wins, uh, I don't believe the republic will recover. I think it's that bad. I think part of the problem of me just saying that is that uh, most people I talk to who are not engaged uh, on these issues, as I wrote in my last article, by Wednesday after the Orlando shooting, this was an article I published late Sunday night, so it actually went out Monday morning, and I did interviews Monday and Tuesday on it um, after the Orlando shooting, and I, I said, you know, I think by Wednesday, people are going to be back to worrying about what the Kardashians are doing and who's doing what on The Voice. And in fact, before the end of the week, you know, we were on to other stuff because the, you know, the government says it's Christian's fault, it's Gunn's fault. You know, this guy was just a nutbag. Excuse me, none of this makes sense. Uh, just another nutbag, another mass shooting in America. We lump it into a big category without... Again, explaining it to the American people, and quite frankly, neither, I want to be very clear, I'm a national security consultant, neither side of the political aisle uh, is showing much leadership on this at all. This is just, it's catastrophic failure across the board. I think as because when I speak to law enforcement and they sit down for three days and let us lay out what's actually going on, what the jihadis are actually doing here in Europe and at the global level, I mean... They're angry, especially people that work on the JTTFs, the Joint Terrorism Task Force with the FBI. They're angry. Local and state police, angry, because they want to know how, how in the heck is it that we don't know this? All right, John, so i got to jump you, in here. My apologies. Yep. We are out of time. Understandingthethreat.com. Understandingthethreat.com, the website. John Guandalo, Raising a Jihadi Generation, former FBI agent, counterterrorism expert. John, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. The website, strangeplanet.ca. That's your portal. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. As always, follow the truth. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. Your long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. Uh, to those of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, here in Toronto, Canada, I bid thee welcome. Uh, those checking us out on one of our affiliate stations on both sides of the border, of course, the Zoomer radio app, the Conspiracy Show app, uh, the podca podcasts, of course, 
uh, TalkZone.com, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, iTunes. Uh, those watching or uh, joining us on our Hangout on Air, streaming us live on YouTube, wherever and however you're listening. It's great to have you here. Thanks for your fine company. Uh, Albert Vinzel is here running our Hangout on Air. Just again, uh, once again, if you'd like to join the Hangout on Air, the HOA, uh, go to my Twitter feed at Richard Serrett. At Richard Serrett, S is in Simon, Y-R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. Just go to the top of the feed, click on the HOA link, the tweet that has the HOA in it, and you're in. Uh, Jamie is uh, on the other side of the glass, twisting Nile, uh, dials and flying this ship into the night and straight on till morning. Good to have you here, Jamie. Uh, Ian Robertson, our, uh, our uh, rockabilly friend, is off. He's our technical producer. He's off uh, gigging somewhere. He'll be back in a couple of weeks, but uh, we have... Uh, Jamie tonight and next week, I believe. All right. Uh, my children are not really impressed uh, that their dad is on radio or TV, could care less, quite frankly, and who could blame them? But several weeks ago, I told them that I have been featured in a comic book and suddenly their eyes lit up and suddenly they saw me in a whole new light. Now I was legitimate. Now, you know, dad is in a comic book. I'm the real deal. <laughs> And I really have to thank uh, my two guests tonight for that. Uh, Van Jensen and Pete Woods of uh, DC Comics uh, fame have uh, started their own comic book company. It's called Dark Horse Publishing, and they have this brand new comic series out, and it's called Cryptocracy. Cryptocracy, which is, you know, a lot of the things that we talk about on this program, you know, the Bilderbergs or some secret society, a uh, political subterfuge. You know, some elite group, some cabal, backstage in the global theater, the puppet masters orchestrating, staging events and so forth. That's what cryptocracy is about. Uh, and the very first issue uh, is going to be out in, in a very short time, I think in July. You'll be able to buy it just about anywhere in the world. And I, as I mentioned, your humble host is uh, featured in issue one. I, I'm on one of the pages, and we'll uh, we'll talk about that. Anyway, they're standing by, uh, Van Jensen, Pete Woods, and they'll tell you all about cryptocracy uh, in just a few moments. And then at the bottom of the hour, open lines, you, me, and the telephone. Now, a couple of weeks ago on the program, we had uh, Ambassador Lee Wanta, Ronald Reagan, President Reagan, Reagan's secret agent, also known as the $31.2 trillion man. And uh, um, the, um, the ambassador and uh, his editor, Lon Gibby, were here uh, to tell Lee Wan his incredible story, how, he's appointed, how he was appointed by Reagan under the Totten Doctrine, became Reagan's secret agent, created this scheme to bring down the Soviet Union, uh, and he ended up, through various financial maneuvers, including a currency swap, destroying the Russian ruble, ending the Cold War, and amassing this huge fortune, which Reagan wanted him to return to the U.S. Treasury, these trillions of dollars, uh, for the benefit of all Americans, pay down their debt, pay it off, in fact, uh, invest in huge uh, infrastructure projects like uh, a high-speed rail system across the United States. Uh, so anyway, Lon uh, Gibby uh, and Lee Wanta were on a couple of weeks ago to talk about that. And they, they made reference to an audio recording on the website uh, called eagle1towanta.com. And uh, this was a, an intercepted phone call between a former governor and a United States senator in which Gibby and Wanta allege uh, they are discussing uh, essentially taking what I understand to be bribe money for from Wanta 
They want a piece of this action, in other words, uh, somewhere between five and ten billions, uh, ten five and ten billion dollars. Uh, and then, anyway, we're gonna we're gonna play that uh, a snippet of that intercepted phone conversation. Again, allegedly between this former governor and a U.S. senator, uh, that has been posted on Lee Wanta's website, Eagle One to Wanta, and then we'll bring Lon Gibby on as well, just to give us a bit of the background and to set the stage for this uh, uh, this audio clip. So it's just kind of a, an update and a follow up to our program a few weeks ago. Uh, that's coming up after the bottom of the hour, and we'll also open up the phone calls for just general, you know, questions, comments. And that's what we do here on Open Lines, obviously, here on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, Van Jensen is the writer of the Flash and Green Lantern uh, Corps for DC Comics, as well as Pinocchio, Vampire Slayer, and The Leg. He's an award-winning journalist and editor and a former newspaper crime reporter. He's also a magazine editor, triathlete, aspiring banjo picker, and alumni magazine editor at Georgia Institute of Technology, attended University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and lives in Atlanta. Van Jensen, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm good, Richard. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, Pete Woods has illustrated most of the top characters in comics, including Deadpool, Robin, Catwoman, and Terminator. This is his first creator-owned series. He's a freelance cartoonist, illustrator, concept designer, storyboard artist, and visualizer and co-creator of Cryptocracy. Pete Woods, welcome to The Conspiracy Show to you. Hi, Richard. Thank you. Uh, so let me just uh, make sure I have the history right because, um, you know, I, I, when I was a kid, you know, the comics for was, uh, you know, it was the Archies and it was, uh, you know, Superman, Batman, and truthfully um, – I sort of have – I'm a little out of touch when it comes to the comic book world, but my kids obviously are huge comic book fans. I know many of our listeners are comic book fans, and it's a true art form. It's a wonderful art form. Um, but your association with DC Comics, are you both still working with DC, uh, freelancing with DC, and this is kind of an offshoot? Or tell me how this works to either of you, Van uh, or Pete. Yes, yeah, so I'm um, yeah, like man, go first. <laughs> okay, so so I'm not I'm not working on anything uh, for DC at at present. It's kind of the way that comic books work. They're sort of uh, work for hire, which is you work for a company, and typically that's Marvel and DC, which are the two big ones that everyone knows. And it's it's really like a almost month to month contract basis. Um, and you know those those gigs are great, but you also um, you know, you kind of need to build your own things to build a career. So, um, so yeah, so it's it's really you know, comic books. These are mostly monthly comic books. So, um, you know, you either work with one of the big publishers or you create your own thing, which is what cryptocracy is, and work with an independent publisher. And then, uh, yeah, they're distributed through comic book shops all over the world. I mean, DC and Marvel. I mean, that those are the. I mean, those are. Huge. I mean, this is this is as good as it gets in the comic book world, right? DC and I mean, and, and Marvel. I mean, if you're working with with one of those outfits, I mean, you're at the top of your game. Yeah, well, I, you said it right. <laughs> All right. So that's what you said, man. Uh, so tell me about a Dark Horse Publishing. Uh, are you the two principals, the driving force behind Dark Horse, or? Dark Horse has been around for for uh, twenty five years or longer. I believe ah, okay. um, they're publishing our our creator owned book, but um, 
they've been around for quite a while, long before us. If you've seen Hellboy or The Mask, um, they made those um, comics way back when. Those are creator-owned comics that were published by Dark Horse. Oh, I see. Okay. So, the inspiration for cryptocracy, uh, where did that come from? Um, so, quite a few years back, um, I, you know, I think just from sort of watching or reading a few too many stories that, you know, showed this big conspiratorial agency that was in control of everything. Um, but, you know, those those groups are always in fiction. They're always evil and they're always mysterious. And you never really see, you know, exactly who they are, or why they do what they do. And it, it just hit me, like, what if we actually saw the story from their perspective, you know, sort of like if the X-Files was told from the side of the smoking man, and what would that look like? And, you know, why would someone want to, you know, bother trying to control the world? And then what would be the thing that would scare a group like that? And what would scare a group like that? <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of it is is chaos. Um, you know, if, if, you know, sort of control, uh, is, is the, the main, you know, modus operandi of, of big conspiratorial agencies as, you know, these conspiracy theories so often posit, uh, the lack of control, the you know, sort of wildness of the world taking four would be the thing that would really put fear into them. And, you know, what our story suggests is that this this chaos really comes in the form of, you know, a, a group and, and particularly in, in one individual. So uh, would the, the a group like the Bilderbergs or maybe something like the Illuminati, would they would they be sort of the inspiration or the, the model that you're basing uh, your protagonist on? Yeah, I mean, we kind of even took it a level further. Like, if, you know, there are all these different groups, right? There's there's the Freemasons, the Illuminati, the Bilderbergs. Uh, you know, you can go on and on at, at all the groups that have been suggested. And, and we kind of looked at it as, like, this grand unified theory of conspiracies. Like, what if, what if there was one group who had, over the years, sort of created and controlled all of these different offshoots? So I think kind of with everything, we tried to just take things one level further, but certainly all of the, you know, all these things that are rooted in fact certainly inspired our story. And for you, Pete, uh, I mean, is this, is your worldview informed at all by this or is this, you know, just kind of a cool gig and, you, you know, you really wanted to illustrate this or, I mean, does your interest in, uh, political subterfuge and conspiracy go beyond that? I mean, does it in fact inf inform part of your worldview? Well, <clears throat> it's funny you mention it because um, Van and I were having a conversation. That we were working together on a um, on a DC project and um, <clears throat> I'm, I don't think either of us remember how the subject came up, but we, we, we both related a, a, an interest in conspiracies and and um, political intrigue and and all the weird stuff that that, that isn't covered everywhere. And um, Van had had this project that he was working on, and he, he once we realized that the two of us were interested in the same sorts of things, 
he brought it to me. So, long story short, yes, um, I've always been interested in in conspiracy theories and uh, and strange strange goings on. All right, Van Jensen, Pete Woods, the two principals behind a brand new comic series. The first issue coming out in mere weeks. We'll tell you how to get a copy. And it's called Cryptocracy. Van Jensen is the writer of The Flash, Green Lantern, uh, for DC Comics, as well as Pinocchio, Vampire Slayer, and The Leg. Uh, Pete Woods has illustrated most of the top characters in comics, including Deadpool, Robin, Catwoman, and Terminator. Uh, And now, through Dark Horse Publishing, they are releasing again this new series that's called Cryptocracy. Uh, And yours truly is, is featured in that first issue, and we'll tell you all about that when we come back. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Hang in there. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. All right, welcome back. Uh, Just a reminder, coming up at the bottom of the hour, open lines, and we'll also do a little update of uh, our, our program a few weeks ago with uh, Lee Wanta, Ronald Reagan's secret agent, the $31.2 trillion man. We're going to play a very interesting uh, audio clip from a uh, an intercepted telephone conversation between, allegedly, a former governor and a U.S. senator uh, involving uh, bribes and what sounds like a rather overt threat uh, to Mr. Wanta and uh, Lon Gibby. Uh, will join us as well, uh, just to give us a little bit of background about this audio clip. Right now, the creators of Cryptocracy, Van Jensen, Pete Woods, uh, are with me. Let me just uh, read right here from the website, darkhorse.com. That's where you can find out more about Cryptocracy. From time beyond memory, the nine families watched from the shadows, believing themselves shepherds and manipulating whole societies as they saw fit. Nothing happened that they didn't observe or control. Outsiders knew not of the families, much less threatened them uh, until now. Uh, think of it as a blend of the X-Files and Marvel's AIM. Again, featuring art by Pete Woods of Deadpool, Catwoman, Superman, Action Comics. And uh, it's written by Van Jensen, who has also worked with uh, DC Comics in the past. All right, so uh, you uh, emailed me a couple of, uh, well, about a month and a half, I guess, and, and I... I tell you, I was just blown away, not only by the artwork and the whole concept, and then to find out that I'm featured in issue number one. Now, uh, could you explain, either of you, uh, how I ended up in in the comic book? Pete, I, I feel like that was that was kind of your uh, your idea initially to to work some people into the artwork. Well, yeah, you know, <clears throat> we've you know we've been influenced a lot by my shows like yours and you know i i started my career drawing late at night to art bell and we just we, we wanted to find people that that were were involved in the community and 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 include them kind of you know you guys uh, are uh, are being watched by uh, the people in charge i just thought it was a it would be a fun nod to the people who are out there sharing this sort of information. Uh, now, so it's um, just so people don't, you know, misunderstand, I'm not, you know, the uh, a feature character or anything. I'm featured on a, on a page, and there's, I think, a group of, there's about nine of us, people like Jesse Ventura, Art Bell, uh, Clive Lewis from uh, Ground Zero, uh, George Norrie from Coast, of course, myself and others, 
and we're uh, we're up on this wall, almost like you know a most wanted wall, and we're being observed, I guess, by members of the families, which is this uh, secret society, uh, and they're concerned because radio programs like this and others are sort of exposing what they're up to. Is that the idea? Yeah, yes, exactly. exactly. Now, the idea of, of, of telling this story from the perspective of, of one of these elites, one of the members of this cabal, is, is interesting. I mean, is, is, is this person um, like a hero? Is he, is, he a, is, he, does he ha- is he ambivalent about what he's up to or is he – I mean, it's, it's interesting that you would choose to tell it from that perspective because most of us you know, perceive these people as evildoers. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to me that was what was so inherently and kind of immediately fascinating about the story idea because, you know, as I started to think about it, it's, you know, okay, so say that it is real, that there is this agency that controls everything. Well, then, you know, that that means that this, this entity and the, the people who run it have the power to make decisions that, you know, millions of lives rest upon. So even if they do have some sort of beneficial agenda, they still have to make decisions to sacrifice, you know, thousands of lives for the betterment of the rest of humanity. And it it gets into that kind of morally gray territory where I I think characters are way more fascinating, where it's, it's not that, you know, golden age comic book, Hey, this guy's good. This guy's evil, but, but really, you know, everyone is conflicted in their own way and people are, are sort of doing what they think best given really, really challenging and weird circumstances. It's, it's interesting if I were to draw a parallel on television, I would, I would probably cite Game of Thrones and my, my wife and I are, are sort of latecomers to that series and we're binge watching. We're now, we just completed season four, but we were, we were talking about, you know, the characterizations on that show and how virtually all of them, uh, with a few exceptions, are just the most reprehensible characters uh, and reprehensible people. Uh, and yet, you know, the story is being told through their through their perspective, from their perspective, and and you know, we, we're sitting there watching transfixed, and and uh, at times I can't believe, you know, that I have some I don't know empathy or sympathetic feelings towards one of these these horrible characters. Yeah, that's, that's definitely. Go ahead, I'm sorry, man. Um, these people don't see themselves as evil they you know an interesting character especially an interesting villain is someone who doesn't really believe that they think they're acting for the benefit of society not against it and these people from maybe from our perspective are are doing terrible things but from their perspective they their intentions are good, I believe. Uh, in our comic, I'm not talking about the rest of the world. Right. You know. Right. Uh, tell me, uh, describe Pete, if you would, sort of the um, the artistic sensibilities that you, you're bringing to this particular series, Cryptocracy. For people who haven't seen the cover, and I, I have tweeted it, uh, and they can go to darkhorse.com and 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 see the cover of issue one. And it's fabulous artwork. But just sort of describe the mood and the, and uh, the, 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 the your style. 
Well, you know, I, I thought a great deal about how I was going to approach it, and so many of these these sorts of comics, if, if people do conspiracy stuff, it tends to be dark and muddy, and I wanted to do something that kind of changed the feeling, gave you a different impression, and so I went for something a little more stylized, a little... While it, it, the palette can be muted in places, in other places it's it's very bright. And, um, yeah, I see you have the, the Denver International Airport for people on the, on the Google Hangout. You can see what we've done there. And tried to make it, you know, put it in a style that people could ease, find easily accessible. I wanted, I wanted um, characters to be easily recognized and so things didn't get confusing. But, yeah, I mean... It's, uh, it's every artist has a different reason why they do things and a different approach to things. In terms that was of my thinking behind it, uh, in terms of the writing, uh, the writing of Van and, and sort of sketching out this this storyboard. I mean, how far in advance? I mean, you've, issue one is 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 ready for the printer, uh, but how far in advance are you sketching these stories uh, for cryptocracy? The the whole first story arc, which is six issues, is fully scripted and has been for quite a while. Um, I mean, I, I'm a pretty organized writer, so I you know had a, a very detailed outline finished uh, well more than a year ago, and um, you know even going back to when I, I first started developing the series, I mean I I kind of. Uh, maybe went overboard, but I took a bunch of 11 by 17 sheets of paper and taped them end to end to end and tacked them up on the wall and, and basically drew out, a, a, you know, sort of a timeline of world history and then beside it an alt timeline of world history as shaped, you know, by these, uh, these secret forces to kind of map out, you know, how this would make sense and how, how the family history would intersect with actual human history. So, yeah, a, a lot of uh, a lot of thinking and planning and plotting has has gone into building this. What kind of um, uh, overlap is there? I don't know if this is you can answer this question, but what kind of overlap? I'm sure you've done sort of you know research, market uh, marketing research, and so forth. But the kind of overlap between, let's say, f- uh, fans of this type of radio program. Uh, and and comic books in general. I mean, I, I think we really set out to make this. You know, it's it's an action adventure story, which I think is pretty accessible to you know a broad a broad readership. But um, it's very much something that will singularly appeal to people who are intrigued by the the concept of conspiracies. You know, it. Um, and Pete and I aren't. You know, we aren't theorists. We aren't sort of obsessively tracking down, you know, one theory or another. But I think we both, you know, believe that there's a lot of stuff that, you know, we don't uh, we don't have the truth in our hands and that things have been obscured. Um, and, and also more than that, we're just sort of fascinated by that world. So. We both have been really well read in that subject area for a long time and um, worked really hard to just Im- imbue a lot of those kinds of specific details into the story. So, you know, I, I think people will like 
sort of generally the flavor of it, as well as you know, see a lot of very specific things that they'll recognize. Can you, without giving too much away, though, but can you give us a hint at sort of the uh, the story arc in terms of um, like, is there a particular thing going on in the news these days that it might find its way into uh, into the series cryptocracy, whether we're talking about something geopolitically or in terms of domestic politics, something that may have come up at a Bilderberg meeting. Can you give us a, a, a hint? Yeah. Um, let's see. The first issue has references to Piggate, the David Cameron scandal, which is kind of a, a, little, a little one uh, hidden in there. Um, it has uh, some references to sort of radical right-wing uh, American you know, conspiracy theorists. Um, there's uh, it gets into um, sort of uh, monetary uh, manipulation, uh, future energy. Um, I'm trying to think what else. It yeah, it, it goes into a lot of a lot of really uh, specific and kind of wide-ranging things. There's there's a whole, you know, kind of alternative theory on cryptids and where they come from and, you know, what exactly they are and what their role is in the world. Uh, but the, the very basic story is that, you know, these families have sort of operated with impunity for centuries, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, there's there's one person who has started killing them off one by one, and it's it's kind of the, the hunt to figure out what's really happening. Ah, sort of uh, like all the old Agatha Christie uh, murder mysteries. Uh, who is killing the great chefs of Europe? In this case, it's you know who are who is killing the uh, the members of the families. Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. All right. Now this uh, so issue one is is ready to go to the printer. When can people actually buy issue one of Cryptocracy? Um, well, the first issue comes out, um, I believe, the 29th of June. So they can go to their local comic shop and, uh, or order it from Dark Horse Online um, on June 29th. And uh, I'm seeing the price here is uh, that's U.S. $3.99. Now, now, if this takes off, and I'm, you know, I, I, I'm really hoping that it does, but issue one is, I mean, that's a big deal for people to own issue one. Do you find that the sales for the first issue are inordinately, you know, higher than subsequent issues, or how does it work? Enlighten me in terms of the comic book business. Do you want to take this, uh, man, yeah. or do you want me to? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the comic book business is kind of a weird business, but. Um, it is pretty collectible based, so a lot of times people will buy, you know, more heavily on a first issue with sort of the, you know, the thinking that if this, you know, becomes popular or becomes a movie or whatever, that it'll be worth more money down the road. I mean, I would, I would say for myself, I, I hope that people buy it to read it and, you know, if, if they want to share it with friends. So again, this will be available in comic book stores uh, around the world. Is that right? Yep. Yes, that's true. And it comes out June 29th. This is issue one of Cryptocracy, and the two creators, Van Jensen and Pete Woods, uh, cover artist is Pete Woods. Not just the cover; you do all the, you do the uh, the artwork throughout. Correct, Pete? 
That's correct. Yeah. The only thing I, I the only visual thing I don't do is the lettering. <laughs> All right. And um, well, listen. The best of luck to you. I got to thank you again for uh, honoring me by including me uh, in the first issue. They're, uh, my uh, my boys think I'm like the greatest thing since sliced bread. Any, not to put you on the spot. Any chance I might end up in a in a subsequent issue? We can put you in there somewhere for sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I think we can. I think we can. You know, we can find a place. Excellent, gentlemen. All the best of luck. Thank you so much, Pete Woods, Van Jensen, Dark Horse Publishing. Thank you. All right. Open lines, you, me, the telephone, get it said, The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740. Or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, welcome back. Open lines, as the good man said. <clears throat> Excuse me. We've got the uh, the phone lines now available to you. And uh, if you've got something of a conspiratorial or a paranormal uh, nature, we would love to hear from you. Uh, but before we do that, a little bit of um, housework here. And I wanted to do a follow-up. I wanted to do this uh, last week, but uh, we ran out of time. Uh, Several weeks ago, we had Lon Gibby on the program from uh, the Gibby Media Group. He's a a producer. Uh, He has just completed a documentary film entitled Eagle One Tawanta, uh, which is about the uh, the life and times of Ambassador Lee Wanta, Ronald Reagan's secret agent and the man who brought the Soviet Union, according to this tale, uh, and it, a remarkable tale it is. Uh, he brought the Soviet Union to its knees through a series of financial maneuvers and currency swaps, which netted Lee Wanta uh, $31.2 trillion in today's money. And that money has been returned to the U.S. Treasury, but it was, th- it was intended, according to President Reagan's wishes, that money was to be used for the benefit, the betterment of the American people. Uh, pay off their debt, uh, invest in huge infrastructure uh, projects, uh, build, you know, VA hospitals, high-speed rail trains, and so forth. Uh, And uh, so we spent the full two hours a couple of weeks ago talking about this remarkable story. And at that time, uh, both Lon Gibby and Lee referred to uh, an audio clip on their website, Eagle One Tawanta. And I didn't have time to play it then, and uh, I'm going to play it now in a few moments uh, but I wanted to just sort of set the uh, um, get the history right here and a little bit of a background before we play this clip. And uh, so I've invited Lon Gibby back to the program. Lon, of course, from Lon or from Gibby Media Group. He is the publisher um, of um, Lee's uh, autobiography called Black Swan, White Hats, and uh, Lon is also the producer of the aforementioned documentary Eagle One to Want. Lon, thanks for joining me on such short notice. How are you? Great. Great. Happy Father's Day. Same to you, you, my friend. All right. So this clip uh, that you both talked about, this is uh, a telephone conversation between a, uh, a former governor. Is it a former governor of Tennessee? Yes, a governor of Tennessee, former governor of Tennessee, Don Sunquist, 
and uh, South Dakota State Senator Sheldon Songstad. Songstad, Senator yeah. Songstad, and is he still a, a, a sitting senator? Uh, no, they're both retired. You know, they they had served their time, and but they're still were. You know, this was in twenty. Uh, this was Labor Day uh, on uh, twenty in the year twenty fourteen. Okay, so the, and, yeah. th- this is a telephone conversation between these two gentlemen, and we're going to hear this clip in a moment. Just It's about a six-minute clip on your website, Eagle One to Wanta. People can go there, eagleonedawanta.com, and play the whole clip, but we're just going to play a snippet of it. Um, yeah. So how is it that you have this – how did you intercept this telephone conversation? This is a private conversation between a former governor and a, and a senator. Yeah, it, well, it's really interesting because um, Lee had asked me, uh, helping him as his communications director, to be on a number of uh, conversations with uh, both of them uh, for the previous couple of previous days to this happening. But anyway, on uh, Labor Day of 2014, they uh, tried to call me, and uh, they were trying to get through to, to just me. And so I called Lee, and I said, uh, should I? Do you want me to take this call? And he said, "Don't take that call." So that's why you'll hear my name mentioned in the in their brief at the start. Uh, they couldn't get through to me because Lee asked me not to to take the call. So they called his embassy phone, and uh, and of course Lee didn't pick up. And um, it's just one of those things for them that was, I'm sure they were really uh, bummed when they found out that they had accidentally left this recording six minutes. They didn't know they were recording the whole thing. And uh, it's it's quite revealing. It, it uh, there's so much information that you can glean out of that six minutes as far as you know how they were operating. You know when they didn't think other people were listening. Okay, so let me just repeat, uh, let me just um, summarize yeah. here. So this former uh, governor of Tennessee, Sunquist, and the uh, the former senator from South Dakota, Songstad, um, were on a conference call. They called Lee Wanta's phone number, intending to speak to him. He did not pick up, however. And then inadvertently, the two of them, I guess, forgot that they maybe, you know, they were supposed to be leaving a message, and they started talking amongst themselves, and all of that ended up on Lee Wanta's voicemail. That's correct. And that's exactly how they got this this recording, which... Um, and then it was released right after that. Veterans Day released it. A uh, number of uh, new, uh, news organizations released it, but it never did hit uh, mainstream news, which you, would be surprising. You'd think that this would have been picked up immediately. Okay, now, um, former governor. I think we're going to play know. it when we come back because time is a little bit tight, right, Jamie? Okay, so we'll, we'll, uh, Lon Gibby is with us. He is the, um, uh, the producer of Eagle One to Wanta. This is a new documentary coming out about the life and times of Ronald Reagan secret agent Lee Wanta. When we come back, we'll, we'll play a snippet of this conversation between the former governor of Tennessee and a former senator of South Dakota. And, um, well, you're going to hear some pretty remarkable things. And then we'll get Lon to explain exactly what it is that we're hearing. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Do not go away. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusion. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant on Zoomer Radio. Hey, don't forget, uh, season four of The Conspiracy television program 
uh, debuts Monday, June 27th, 9 p.m. Eastern across Canada on Vision TV. Monday, June 27th, 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, check it out. Brand new episodes coming your way across Canada of uh, Vision TV. All right. Oh, a quick shout out. Um, uh, Native Alien, who uh, follows me on uh, on Twitter, uh, celebrating a 60th birthday today. On Father's Day, no less. So uh, his handle, Native Alien. And uh, I wish you a, a happy birthday. All right. Lon Gibby is with us. Gibby Media Group, the producer of the documentary Eagle One to Wanta and uh, also the editor of uh, Lee Wanta's autobiography. And, uh, okay, so we're going to hear this clip. And, again, this is a uh, – we're going to hear about two minutes of it, a clip between former governor of Tennessee Sunquist and a former senator of South Dakota – by the name of a songstad, and um, these two are discussing, uh, well, their dealings with with uh, Lee Wanta. Let's listen. Well, he, he owes us all of it, but we'll settle for half of it just to get right. out of this, just to get away and forget about it. He won't ever have to hear worry about us again, right? But he does owe us that money. So anyway, and, and and if he does, if he says he doesn't, then then I, I'm going to ask him, what does he think? What do you think, Lee, that you owe us? Anything for all that work? Anything? See what well, says. Yeah, I can say anything you want. I don't care uh, anymore. All right. Let's figure out what, what's happening. Nice old Sheldon ain't nice old Sheldon anymore. Well, we'll just have to... Nice old Sheldon's going to have to ask his friends to help. Yeah, that's no problem. Yeah, and uh, the question is going to be how fast can they act? Well, I'd say pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. Huh. And they have ways of finding out where he is and how to reach him. Uh, I'm sure that's not a problem. I don't know how they do all that, but I don't... Yeah, well, you don't want to know. I don't want to know some of that. No. But does he have government protection? Who? Please. Oh. Ah. They know that, too, I guess, huh? He claims to, but I, you know, uh, I would... I would hope he does, but, you know, if he does, he's, I just can't imagine anybody as smart as he is is going to be screwing around over $10 billion, you know? Or even five. Or five, even, you know? Yeah. If I had that kind of money, I'd, and dealing with us, too, I'd give them 10 so fast and make your head spin, just get rid of me. Me too. Me too. Well, we'll give him the choice. Right. Then. You want rid of us? Give us five, and we'll call it even. Yeah, that's it. No less. No less. That's it. No negotiation. One-time offer. Take it or leave it. Can't go. No, not take it or leave it. <laughs> yeah. You better take it. I mean. <laughs> yeah. They- 
All right, there you are. That is, uh, an, I have to say, alleged because I mean, I I can't tell you that this is definitely the. Uh, these are the voices of former Tennessee Governor Sunquist and former South Dakota Senator Songstead. But this is uh, these are this is a conversation that was left on inadvertently left on the voicemail of Lee Wanta. Alon Gibby is with us, uh, the producer of the documentary Eagle One to Wanta, and the editor of Lee Wanta's autobiography. So, Alon, uh, explain now why are these gentlemen looking for uh, five billion dollars? They were. It sounds like they say they were promised ten, but they'd be willing to take half five billion for the work that they do. They did what work? Well, they credit themselves with uh, with Lee's money being restored or returned back to him, which again, uh, it, it it had been put back into the treasury, but Lee still hadn't been able to access those funds. But they believed that he had. So they they felt that um, they were entitled to something for that, you know. And again, you know, sec- Title 18, Section 201 makes it clear what bribery is uh, for former government uh, officials. Uh, if, 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 if it's in effect when they're in office and when they leave office, so you can't do those kinds of things. But, but if they did, did they do yeah. work for him? Were they promised money? Well, it's my understanding, and I was just on uh, a number of phone calls. With Lee, I wasn't in all those conversations just uh, earlier, a couple days before, and they were expecting thirty billion dollars. And I, when I after that conversation, I asked Lee. I said, "That's it was a shock to me because you know I, I'm a small businessman. I understand what you know one billion dollars, you know, is a thousand million million. You know, so, so uh, can you imagine somebody expecting thirty billion dollars?" And uh, they had it all divvied up to the various people and layers that they were going to pay that would supposedly help them influence Congress and the president and the, the people that were holding back the money, the Federal Reserve, uh, to get these money restored back. Because, again, remember, a federal judge had, in 2006 had, had ordered that these money be restored, and he paid his taxes and repatriated that money. So they were they were saying that they could help maybe pull some strings to help make sure that money got repatriated or brought to the that U.S. Is, Treasury. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. How do we and know? That, how do we know, Lon, that these are in fact? I mean, because this is pretty damning. If, if what is being said on this phone conversation is correct, how do we know these are really the voices of Governor Sunquist and Senator Songstad? This could be anybody. Well, well, my understanding is that that it's all been verified through the intelligence community. Who that is, but I, again, I I heard heard those same voices identifying themselves as the as the former governor of Tennessee. I was introduced to them, and uh, I heard their voices for uh, um, two or three previous phone calls. So that was those were the same exact voices. All right. I mean, that's just my first person. To, and and uh, during the conversation, yeah. one of them—I'm not sure if it was Governor Sunquist or Senator Songstead—says, "Well, how fast can they act?" Who is they, and what does he mean by act? It sounds like he's well, is a threat. Upsetting. That's been a very upsetting that part of it because um, obviously they have, you know, they have people that they would go to put the extra heat on on uh, on Lee, which is a real scary thing. I, and I'm not sure what they were referring to, but it, you know, you fill in the blanks. What it sounded like to me, I mean, you heard it. 
sounded to me like they were going to send some people out to, um, and we've been threatened many, many times. So there's been people, and um, he does have protection. Well, yeah, because immediately after, one of them, I believe it was the governor, asked Songstead, does he, meaning Lee, have government protection? Uh, so you put those two together, yeah. it does sound like a threat. Yeah, it sounds like a threat, and it sounds like they had authority or the ability. Because remember, these are high-level people. They're, they're actually working very high up in the Republican Party, you know, which, again, I'm, I've been a Republican. I am a Republican, but I'm very upset to think that people that were elected officials would be talking this way. All right. I mean, I've never heard anything like this in my entire life. I was shocked. And and um, after you I was stunned when I heard that after you published this on your website, did uh, have governors uh, have Governor Sunquist and Senator Songstead ever tried to uh, issue a statement, deny it? Have they come after no, you? No, it's never been denied. If you go on the internet, you'll find you'll find that it's really kind of been just kind of swept under the under the rug. I understand both of them had some, uh, some pretty serious illnesses that came up suddenly. I don't know much about that. Uh, Lee could comment on that. Uh, but, you know, that's typically what happens when people get in trouble. They get sick or, you know, have to, you know, they're, 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 they're unavailable for, for commenting because they might have had a stroke. Or, so there were, no more, there, were no, yeah. there were no more threats? There were no more conversations with Lee no. about demanding this money? It all stopped? No, that all stopped immediately. And there have been no conversations. My understanding is there's no communication. At least I, I've been thirty-two between these gentlemen, these people, and uh, we. All right. Listen, Lon, thanks for coming on again last minute. And again, I will direct people to the website, eagle1towanta.com, if they, and go to the audio section if they want to listen to that clip for themselves. It's about six minutes. We played about two. And again, yeah, allegedly the, the context. You know, it's yeah. really interesting to hear the start all the way through. And you hear it in context and, and what they were talking about. And again, these are allegedly the voices of Governor Sunquist and uh, of uh, Tennessee and uh, Senator Songstad from South Dakota discussing during a telephone conversation what appears on the surface to be uh, demanding a bribe from Lee Wanta and then uttering what appears to be a threat. So people can go on uh, to com and listen to the full six minutes and uh, make up their own minds. Lon, thank you again for this. Hey, you're welcome. Uh, glad to be there, and thank you for your efforts to get the, the, some of the truth out that you're working on. So, thank you. All right, eagle1towanta.com and eagle1towanta, that documentary uh, available to moviegoers soon. And, of course, uh, the autobiography of uh, Lee Wanta, Black Swan, White Hats, edited by Lon Gibby. All right, uh, let's see. Here's our media scientist friend, Nelson Thal. Welcome, Nelson. How are you? Are you there, Nelson? Nelson, go ahead. You're on, my friend. Hey, yo, good evening. I just want to just say, hey, the show's going great. And I just want to remind everybody that the TV show's going to start uh, the fourth season. Uh, I'm a researcher of it, and it's a great show. There's some great shows there. just want to remind people not to miss it. Well, thank you. Yes, Nelson Thal is our um, researcher, frequent guest on this program. And uh, thank you for that plug, Nelson. Monday, June 27th. So, um, Richard, can I have a moment and talk shop with you about the Wanta stuff? Yeah, we've got about two minutes here. Okay, well, you know, the, it was the exclusive story on Wanta was put out by Sherman Skolnick on Cloak and Dagger. 
All right. And, and the early stories, it, it's very interesting. And um, it, all the stories are spun, let's remember, folks. <laughs> They're all spun. And the job of our researchers here uh, in the counter-propaganda department is to unspin the spin. Correct, Richard? Yes, yes, as, as, uh, as well as that can be done. I mean... <laughs> well, the first reports... The first reports about Wanta that from Skolnick were there was a Treasury Department master engraver. Yeah, I've heard you. You've asked him that, and I've asked. I've asked him that. Counterfeiting machines and had machines that beat the Russians. The Russians were, banks were unable to identify it, and that's how they brought down. So the early reports by Skolnick is the way they did it was not this calls and puts and this way. What they did is they had a master engraver print up the money, and the money could be. The, uh, the Russian banks—they took control of the Russian monetary system. Well, I understand. I've a, asked Lee that. I've engraver. Okay, I've talked to Lee uh, three times in the last several years, uh, and I've asked him about that, and he said that was—that's never been the case. I have, I've, I've asked Marilyn Barnwell that, who worked with uh, Lee sp- previously. So who knows? Uh, well, that's I, right. It's always, but it's not something to for to to miss because remember, it, it, the, the story was that, that they went to arrest arrest Gore went to arrest Mark Rich Clinton's commando team stopped it, and that's why yeah, Vince that's Foster all. got wound up dead. And remember, General Vernon Walters. They never talk about him, but he was the big guy. Okay. Yeah, I don't want to get too inside baseball here, and we're running out of time. But uh, all right. so. That's another story. Maybe we could do a show on it one time. All right. Thank you, anyway, my friend. Rich, uh, wonderful. Almost, uh, everybody should watch the TV season starting uh, this Monday coming up. No, the Monday uh, week tomorrow? Monday 27th, 9 p.m. Eastern. Thank you, Nels. Always good to hear from you. All right. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Albert. Back next week with a brand new program. What are we doing next week, Albert? Oh, Dr. Lana Marconi. She's got a brand new film out, and uh, we'll talk... Uh, to her and some of the guests on that program, and then an hour of open lines, correct? Yes, another open line session. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.